Hello everyone, this is Matt Ferret, author of Prepare for Medicare and Prepare for Social Security Insider's Guidebooks and Online Course Training Series. Welcome to another episode of The Matt Ferret Show, where I interview insiders and experts to help light a path to successful living in midlife, retirement, and beyond. Braden, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Excited to be here. Glad you're here. Tell everybody what you do, how long you've been doing it, and how you help people. So we lower medical bills for Americans. Think of us like a turbo tax for lowering your medical bill or your medical debt. We've been doing it for about four years now. We've helped thousands of people save over $30 million in total on their medical bills. And we're helping people get out of medical debt and move forward with their lives so they don't have to be crushed by medical bills, but they can actually live their lives. That's a very big topic. I'm really happy to get into it. When you say you help people lower their medical bills and then get out of debt, let me start start with the lowering medical bills first. Yep. Give me a story. Tell me a scenario where you guys might jump in. So broadly speaking, it's any time you have a large medical bill, right? But as an example, we had somebody from Tennessee come to us who was living the American dream. Great job, house in the suburbs, family, two cars had a kid who was going into high school in a couple of years. They had a lapse in insurance. They ended up with an $80,000 medical bill. While they were uninsured, the hospital was being aggressive in collecting from them. And that was threatening their their livelihood. They didn't have $80,000. They could either sell their house or they could cash out the money that they had saved for their kid's college fund to pay this medical bill. And so they came to us not knowing where to turn. And we were able to negotiate that down to under $20,000 for them. Oh, wow. And there's other examples that we have where we've done, we've wiped medical bills entirely off for people as well. So in that particular scenario, they had a lapse in insurance, which I am going to interpret as that the person with the health insurance either resigned or lost their job and didn't elect COBRA or did and it ran out. Something along or those lines? There was, or is confusing in the election of COBRA and the start date didn't, you know, there was a gap in insurance when they started COBRA, which happens very frequently, right? Like getting set, get, getting yourself set up on COBRA can be very confusing. Yeah, it absolutely can. It's definitely not straightforward. There's not there's not one click continue uh, anywhere, yeah. right? So you help lower medical bills. Let's talk about that that eighty thousand. So somebody didn't have insurance coverage. They had to go to the hospital, and the hospital sent them a full bill. What is something like that when you don't have insurance? What does that eighty thousand dollars usually represent? So from a pricing perspective. That's what's called the charge master rate, which is the full rack rate for going to a hospital. The reality is nobody actually pays that rack rate. I'm going to bucket hospital pricing into three broad buckets. You've got the Medicare rate, which is what the government sets and says, we are going to reimburse you hospital or you doctor's office this amount for this procedure. Medicare uh, runs an analysis and tries to set that as a cost plus, so the cost of running that procedure plus some profit margin for the hospital, but a very small one. Then you have the insurance negotiated rate. That's the rate that the hospital and the insurance company will negotiate behind closed doors for a procedure. Now, a hospital can have different and will have different negotiated insurance negotiated rates with different insurance companies that they work with. And the same insurance company will have very different rates for the same procedure at two separate hospitals that could be down the street from each other. So it can be very confusing. That's also a discount rate. And then the third rate is that charge master rate, that fully loaded rate that's an absolutely absurd number. It averages four to five times the actual hospital costs. And we've seen hospitals where the charge master rate is over 20 times their costs. 
Is that kind of the, that, that master rate you said, is that kind of when you hear stories every once in a while that someone got charged a thousand dollars for an aspirin while they were in the yeah. hospital? Yep. That's exactly what it is. That's the charge master rate where they just made up an, an absolutely insane number. And then basically inflated it by 10 to 15% every year since they made it up. Okay. So I get what you're saying. Medicare basically dictates if you're on Medicare, they dictate to the hospitals yeah. or anybody else, really. There's a payment structure that says, this is what we're going to reimburse you. If you yeah. want to take Medicare, uh, you, you got to accept this number. And of course, no one, very rarely do people not accept Medicare because there's a lot of Medicare patients, right? Yes. In the next 10 years, one out of five Americans are going to be over the age of 65. So you're going to be cutting out a sizable amount of customers if you don't if you, take yep. Medicare. Same thing with Medicaid, likely, but, you know, government slash state funded uh, or run programs and then commercial insurance, which is the stuff you get at your employers or uh, the ACA, right? The individual exchange. So then there's there are negotiated rates there. And if I if I heard you correctly, each insurance company negotiates its own payment structure with each, in this case, hospital, right? Roughly speaking, yes. I mean, it gets a little bit more complicated when you dig into it, but broadly speaking, that's the best way to think about it. And so if I'm on like insurance through my work, commercial insurance, that's why when I get an, an explanation of benefits or an EOB, the charge might say $80,000 and then it says discount rate $20,000 and then my benefits kick in, right? Correct. Because the insurance company negotiated so that that 80000 charge is actually a $20,000 price for them. Okay. So that $20,000 charge versus the $80,000 charge is actually kind of an unspoken benefit of having insurance. It's not only the financial protection when you get a bill, but essentially when you're buying insurance on your own or you're using your employer's insurance, the other benefit is that that insurance company has negotiated discounted rates so that when you do pay what you owe, it's actually starting at a lower point. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I thought I got that right. But again, broadly speaking, um, so let's go to the self-pay thing or when you have a gap in coverage or when someone is out of network. Why on earth are healthcare providers, A, allowed to put something out that's up to, as you said, 20x their quote unquote real rate or even four or five X? How does this situation occur? I mean, if you're asking from a regulatory perspective or a market perspective, I can answer from a market perspective, right? And that's basically healthcare costs or healthcare is very, very opaque, right? Like you can't go to, when, especially for emergent care services where this happens often, you're not shopping around for different emergency rooms to find the one with the best price. And even if you are shopping around for something, like not an emergency, you don't always know exactly what that service you need is. Yes, if you just need surgery on your ACL for an ACL tear, that can work, but maybe you have a pain in your abdomen. You think it's appendicitis, the doctors think, but they don't know exactly what it is. They've got to cut you open to take a look. Like it's very difficult to then shop because you don't know exactly what the services are going to end up being. And because until recently, hospitals didn't actually have to publish their prices, there was no way to actually shop historically, right? So there were no market pressures to really push uh, or have any type of competitive pricing. So I get that, right? You can't really shop around when you're searching for an ER. Not yep. the best time necessarily to price compare. Right. And of course, we don't even get into quality on this because we're just yep. talking about pricing and bills. So you're right. There are now things that have been published recently that will show a list of prices. And I think I've read some 
hospitals or some some healthcare providers have been reticent or late in publishing those. They have right? been. So the initial penalty for not publishing that was something like three hundred dollars a day, which amounts to about ninety thousand dollars a year, which for some large hospital systems is merely a rounding error. And so they said it's just not worth it to actually take the time to publish this. We'll just pay the fine. Now that's since changed and the government is working on getting hospitals to publish their pricing, but it's still not a universal thing despite being required. I bet you're not going to be able to answer this question, but maybe okay. you can give perspective. So yeah, here's an almost impossible question to answer. Why would a healthcare provider or a hospital double, triple, quadruple, 10x charge someone for a bill? I mean, they're a healthcare provider. I don't expect them to not have a profit. I mean, it is capitalism after all, but how, when you get to that $1,000 aspirin or that $80,000 bill, but really they expect 20 grand, what about our system is broken or jaded enough to like think that's okay? You know, that's a great question. I don't have the definitive answer. You're right. I have some speculation on it. I think, well, let's put it this way. Everybody who goes into healthcare almost universally is going in with the best intentions, right? They want to help people in some way. But the healthcare system is so incredibly complex with so many almost perverse incentives for doing things that you start to get isolated from the end of actually helping the patient, especially when you're not the doctor or the nurse who's actually sitting there treating the patient, who, by the way, have nothing to do with healthcare bills. They don't set the rates. They don't know what the rates are. They're not making any determination on the rates. Instead, you've got the accounting office and the billing department in the back who has no contact with the patient actually making these decisions and setting these rates. And I think because things are so far removed and because you've got all these other incentives going on, you start to get a scenario where this starts to happen, then it compiles over time. Again, I'm asking you to speculate yeah. if you don't know. So fair warning, right? These are This is the second question you probably can't answer, but uh, maybe you can. And that's why I'm going to ask it. So when I think about if I'm a hospital administrator, I'm not picking on hospitals. It's just easy to say a hospital administrator because yeah. everybody can see the hospital building in their mind. So they have, let's say, a panel of patients, right? They've got people that live within a 10 square mile and let's call it 100,000 people. Out of that 100,000 people, they're going to have a certain percentage that are Medicare and Medicaid when they've got set reimbursement, basically. And then they've got commercial slash individual Affordable Care Act people. And that's a you know percentage and then they have a percentage of people like your example that are uninsured for whatever reason, choice, circumstance, uh, clerical error, misstep, mistake, whatever. What percentage of, again, speculation, do they charge these prices to somehow balance their books? In other words, the Medicare rate is kind of a break even or just a couple of percentage points profit. The commercial rates typically a lot higher but somehow they've got to balance their books by self-pay people. Is, is, is that a reason? I don't think it is, largely because hospitals really struggle to collect from self-pay people as it is. It, they collect anywhere from 25 to 35 cents on the dollar charge to self-pay people. Anyway, they just end up sending them to collections. It actually costs them five times as much to, from a self-pay patient as it does from insurance because they spend so much time and effort collecting, then they send them to collections. And if they take any type of aggressive collections activity, they do run the risk of negative PR and regulatory action, right? Like every now and then you hear or you see news articles about hospital systems that have been suing patients on a regular basis to recover monies. And that's never a good, good look for a hospital. So I actually don't think 
they do it as an attempt to balance their books or collect more. There might be some level of accounting shenanigans that go in to this and the reasons why they have these high prices, but I don't think it's from a uh, cash collection standpoint. Thank you. So I'm going to wrap up the uninsured first, but I definitely want to go to the insured because just because you have insurance doesn't mean that you're, yeah. you're, you're <laughs> I think all of us know I'm not going to have issues with, with billing and trying to match paper up. So for the uninsured folks that find themselves in a situation where they have to self-pay, is there a threshold of debt or bill that you kind of deal with, or is it vary on the individual, by the individual of the circumstance? So for us, we only work on bills $1,000 or more because we need to find enough savings to, to charge enough money to cover our costs. And we charge a percent of savings found between 10 and 25%. So we want to find a large chunk of savings. Now we're working on doing a better job of cost efficiency so we can take that $1,000 and drop it down. And it was $5,000 two months ago. So we've been successful in dropping the minimum size down. I mean, I think a thousand dollars is low enough. I mean, that's I was I was expecting you to say ten because you're right. I mean, you guys got to eat, right? If you're yeah. providing a service, you've got to have some sort of margin there. It's a very generous amount, thousand dollars. Yep. Let's go to people who have insurance, and I don't know how you want to tackle it, but in my world, right, the Medicare world, I know that two types of medical, actually three types of medical insurance policies, uh, or three ways to consume Medicare. So the first way is just to use original Medicare A and B. And that's basically an 80-20 plan, right? The feds pay 80, you end up being on the hook for, for 20. And one of the things that people don't really realize about that is that it that 20% is essentially uncapped. You can pay 20% of $5 million because there is no maximum out of pocket. There's never a time where original Medicare says, you're good. You don't have to pay anymore. In fact, there are lifetime limits if you really hit them. If you're in the hospital for a very long time, there's a chance you can hit your lifetime limits. So you might have insurance, but if you have a really bad event, there could be some massive bills that are valid, by the way, right? That are valid that you could have. The second way of doing it is to add a Medicare supplement policy, which basically picks up most or if not almost all of that 20%. So now you have Medicare paperwork coming in who they send it to the Medicare or the billing office sends it to the Medicare supplement insurance company, they generate it and then they send you and you're trying to match paper, right? What did the feds pay? What did my supplement company pay? Why is there a Delta? And then there's Medicare Advantage, which is kind of a fully insured product. And you have usually set copays, but you also have co-insurance there as well. The kick there is you have in and out of network benefits. So even though 90, what is it? 97% plus of all doctors accept Medicare. That is not the case with Medicare Advantage. They're two different things. Medicare Advantage has insurance company networks, just like your old commercial plan when you worked. So even though you might go to a doctor in Poughkeepsie that accepts Medicare, they may not accept the Medicare Advantage plan. So now you're out of network, even though they accept Medicare. So Let's start with original Medicare first, the 80-20 piece. What do you see there? Yeah, so I'll point out that around 20% of the patients we work with are Medicare age. So we do work with a significant number of Medicare patients, right? And you're absolutely correct. We've actually worked with patients who have had such bad hospital events that they've capped their Medicare lifetime limits and then ended up with these enormous bills. And so we can work with the hospital to get a reduction there. Quite frankly, when those bills are that big, there's just no way for the patient to pay it. And once you bring that to the right person, 
at the hospital and present it in the right way, they come to realize that. And they're willing to work with you to actually get to a reasonable amount to pay, right? Because most people, they don't have $500,000 to pay off. They're just going to be in debt for the rest of their lives. That serves nobody well. And so we're able to actually cut that down. And when someone has a Medicare supplement policy that kind of bumps in there, right, that whole paper match thing, should I be paying attention to that as a consumer? Should I just... uh, Oh, yeah. Should I just think that the Medicare supplement's picking everything up and I can throw everything in the recycling? I I would not assume that. Uh, We do a lot of work on actually matching that. And sometimes it feels like you almost need a PhD in how Medicare and Medicare Advantage works to actually make sure that that stuff is matched. Luckily, we have people who do this all day long, and so they're very, very good doing it. But yeah, you should be looking at all of that to make sure everything lines up. You basically need spreadsheets and tracking system and enormous amount of organized paperwork to make sure everything is correct. Medicare supplements picking up what they should. They're not improperly denying coverage that you have to appeal it if they are. Right. And then let's go to Medicare Advantage. That's a whole other ball of wax, isn't it? Yes. On top of that is Medicare Advantage making sure that they're paying everything that they should pay as well. And I'm going to pause, Matt. I apologize. I thought you were talking about Medicare Advantage previously. So, oh no, got- it, it it worked. No, it, okay. it worked. I think you did. Yeah, no, okay. no, you did. It, it it worked. You didn't say anything that was messed up on the Medicare supplement piece. Okay, you just threw threw me for a for a loop a little bit. I apologize. Sorry, man. So yeah, I was going original Medicare, original Medicare plus supplement, and then Medicare yeah. Advantage. Yeah, so you're right. adding a third layer on, basically, that now you have to manage as well, and that just creates more complexity in the system. And so you just have to track that extremely closely. It's something that you can do if you have the time and the inclination to do it. But most people have lives to live and haven't lived their world in Medicare. And so don't inherently understand it the way you might or some other people might. Do you get involved at all with, let's just say, let's we're on the topic of Medicare Advantage now, right? Kind of that 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 third way where the insurance company denies a portion of a claim and then then the yeah. hospital figures out and then you've got to go back to the insurance company yes, and go, what the, the heck? Time. I was how, how do I handle that? I mean, if as a consumer, before I call you, how do I handle that? Yeah. So I would say if you're gonna do this yourself, I think you need to follow three broad steps. One is gather all the relevant information, right? Assemble the paperwork, get your explanation of benefits, understand why the claim was denied, get the bills from the insurance company. It's likely you're going to want your electronic medical records or your medical records as well so that you can actually build up a case for why something should be covered. The second is to set the plan for how to go about doing this. In this case, it's it's relatively clear we want to appeal coverage. And so we're going to set that plan. We're going to build out our appeal and then we go out and execute on that. And so we run through the appeal process with the Medicare Advantage Insurance Company. When you're doing this, what you really want to do is try to find an advocate in the insurance company, somebody who will help you along this way, right? Like all insurance companies, and I'm sorry, Matt, I know that you've worked in insurance, but they're pretty Byzantinian. And when you're on the outside looking in, it can be extremely confusing to figure out the process and how to go through this, right? And so if you have an insider who can help guide you through that process, it makes worlds of difference. Okay. So run me through a scenario if you can, or an example that you've got. So uh, I'm on Medicare and then we can go to commercial after this because I really do want to hear there because the deductibles and out of pockets are a lot of times way higher on that side than they are in Medicare. But sticking with Medicare for a second, 
let's say you know your policy pretty well. You know that hospital A is in network. You've got to go have surgery on your ankle. You know your doctors are in network. And so your doctors are in network. You can't really check whether or not you don't have any idea who's going to show up from anesthesia. You don't really know if what nurse is going to show up or if they're a visiting nurse or they're from some other facility. You don't know, right? All you know is you went to go get your uh, your thing fixed. You, they said, here it is. Oh, you checked the facilities and network. In other words, you've done everything right. And then you have the surgery, you know, you go to PT, you come home and all of a sudden you're getting medical bills and EOBs and all of a sudden you owe what? It looks like full price from the hospital. And my insurance company sent me something two days earlier that said it was paid. But then there's a piece in there that says my anesthesiologist was out of network. I guess they'll catch up to each other. When do I take action? Like all of a sudden this 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 mountain of paperwork yep. shows up and usually I'm just crossing my fingers and praying that ah oh, they'll figure it out. At what point do hospitals or facilities usually end up kind of getting that all reconciled and then send you a quote unquote final bill? I don't think there's a standard point when that happens. It can take months and months. We've seen it take hospitals six, nine plus months to get that all reconciled. There are times when it can't be reconciled for one reason or another, and we've had to step in and actually force that reconciliation. There are also times where hospitals are on top of it, and it takes under 30 days for everything to be reconciled. My recommendation to you when you start getting that is actually start calling your hospital, call uh, your insurance company, explain the situation, and make sure that it's being worked on rather than sit there and cross your fingers. Right, because if it doesn't get fixed, and that's actually a bill that the hospital thinks you owe, if it becomes overdue for long enough, you can get sent to collection, which isn't the end of the world. It's not going to hit your credit report for a significant amount of time after collections, and you still have time to fix it. But it's also not an experience that you want to have. No, it's not. And I'll just give you a, a personal. I mean, this I can't tell you. It's probably happened to you because it's probably happened to everybody listening or watching right now. Which is, I went and had something done, and immediately the insurance company tries to give me a bill. I'm like, again, I've been in insurance, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know like you guys didn't even send the bill in yet. And you're sending me a cash bill. I don't pay it. And I pay my bills on time, just like probably everybody else tries to do or does. Um, I don't pay it. Um, And then, you know, I've gotten where 30 days later, they'll send a we're going to send you to collections evil letter. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This is 500 bucks. I'm good for 500 bucks. I knew I was going to get the healthcare services. I knew I was going to have out of pocket, but I don't know that I owe you that. Yep. And so then I have to go through this whole EOB thing of logging in. Um, it's, it's annoying. It and is. if I, if I had a fragile ego, I would say it's offensive. So 500 bucks or 5,000 bucks, what should I think about the collections process and aggressive billing and how to handle that? Well, so one thing to remember with collections is just because something goes to collections doesn't mean it's going to hit your credit report. In fact, there's uh, regulations that limit what can and can't go against your credit report. So if something goes to collections, first of all, the collections company has to report this to a credit reporting agency before anything can happen. And so if they're not reporting it to a credit uh, reporting agency, nothing will go on your credit. Second, it's got to, the bill has to be over $500 for it to have any effect on your credit reporting. And third, even after a collections agency reports something to a credit bureau, there's a 12 month curing period where you have 12 months to solve the issue before it actually shows up on your credit report. And if it ever does show up on your credit report and then you get it solved, it gets wiped from your credit report completely. Right? So you still have protection, right? Like yes, getting, uh, calls from collections agencies is never fun, 
but that doesn't mean your credit is going to be destroyed just because you start getting this you still have time to figure things out yeah i guess it feels offensive to me because i don't get sent to collections like it feels like they're pulling the trigger on this stuff pretty quick pretty quickly and so there are things i guess i should back up and say there are things you can do with the hospital as well when they start sending them this is why i say if you start getting a bill from a hospital, reach out to the hospital and the insurance company, try to get the process along solving it, right? Because if you do get that threat letter, you can call the, the hospital, ask them about it, talk to them, uh, see if they're actually working with the insurance company, ask them to put it, uh, the, the bill on hold for, to stop it from going to collections immediately while you work through the process to try to get the insurance company to pay more. I've been in the situation as well. And I know I'm making it personal, but I'm sure everyone or many, many people in this where I've gotten a bill and I've paid it. And then six months later, I get a check from the facility or the doctor that pays me a percentage back. And then I go, man, that's annoying. You've held on to my money for six months. I could have kept it in my bank account. Is there a time frame that you suggest kind of holding on that? You mean I'm paying a bill? It's like they're sending you a bill before the insurance has paid them. Yeah. It's almost like, wait, you're getting paid. And they're like, yeah, we don't care. We want your money. And then we'll get reimbursed. And then when we get around to it, we'll send it back. Yeah. So that's a really good question, right? Like I would say hold off for 30 to 60 days, right? You want to give time for the insurance company to run through the process or everything. Now, it may not actually happen in 60 days. There are times when things can take longer than that. But as you hold off longer and longer, you start to run the risk of going overdue with your doctor's office or with your hospital. If you really want to avoid going to collections, you do want to end up paying that if you can eventually. So let's go to commercial insurance. Yeah. And I and I make the difference again, because when you have Medicare insurance, you typically have, I don't know, more comprehensive coverage than some of the commercial plans out there. I mean, there are employer-based plans with $10,000 individual deductibles and $20,000, fa- I mean, just bare bone stuff. Even in big companies, right? Uh, you've got HSAs, which are you know ways to, I guess, save your own money to pay your deductibles. But those deductibles have to be really high, and I don't remember what they are this year. But you know, in the past, let's call it five thousand dollar individual deductible, fifteen thousand dollar annual deductible. We're talking about a lot of exposure, even though you have quote unquote you know comprehensive insurance. What are the nuances there, even if you're insured and getting billed, what are the nuances on on commercial insurance if we're still working or getting insurance from an employer? Yeah, so we see three broad cases for people who have large bills, even though they have commercial insurance. The first is what you're you're talking about. They have a really high deductible, as much as $20,000 for the family uh, out-of-pocket max for the year, and they start to get up towards that max, and they can't afford to pay. The second is they go out of network for a surgery, and then they have an out-of-network bill. Insurance company either doesn't cover it or only covers a small portion. And the third is they are in network, but the insurance benefits doesn't cover whatever they whatever surgery or whatever procedure they had. And so they end up with a large bill from the hospital. And so all three of those are things that we can work with, right? So if you have a large deductible, we can negotiate with the hospital, or you can negotiate with the hospital to get that to get that uh, down, right? Hospitals often recognize that people can't pay $20,000 out of pocket. They're not going to collect $20,000 on average from people. And so they're willing to work with you as long as you can make good faith efforts to pay. If you're getting denied coverage because you're out of network or it's for services not provided, 
for another reason, you can go back to your insurance company and run an appeals process to get more coverage for that so that you can get your bill. Okay. And you can help with all of that. We can help with all that. We do that all the time. Yeah. So if I wanted to do this myself yep. and let's, let's pretend I, again, I went to have surgery and my deductible is 10,000 bucks and I knew it and I don't have 10 grand to pay a hospital, but I can't walk. So I get a bill for 10 grand, my yep. deductible insurance is processed properly. Yep. I knew it was going to happen. I can't cut a $10,000 check. What should my approach or what could my approach be? In that scenario, I'm going to offer two, two options. But I do want to point out that we do have a full guide on our website available for free to anyone who wants it. They can walk through all of this in much, much more detail. Now, we don't cover every single thing that could happen, right? Because this isn't so incredibly complex. So we've got 40 pages of how to understand this, how to build your plan and how to go out and execute on that. But in your scenario that you're proposing, I'd suggest first actually taking a look at the financial aid policy of the hospital to see if you can qualify for financial aid. Most hospitals have financial aid policies. And so if you're below a certain multiple of the federal poverty line, in some instances, that's four times the federal poverty line, which is 4x the federal poverty line for a family of four is over $100,000. So if your income is below that, you can qualify for some either a full wipe or a discount. If you don't qualify for the hospital financial aid department, that's when you can go and start negotiating on their bill. Generally speaking, the most compelling offer to a hospital is some sort of lump sum. Right. So instead of $10,000, you've got $5,000. You'll offer that right now in exchange for the bill to be considered in full. I don't say this to in any way demean what you do or the industry, but I've heard of these approaches before one other place in America only. And that is with like high balance credit yeah. card debt. Are there parallels? Because I'm kind of feeling like there might be. So there are some parallels. I think the difference is for high balance credit card debt, in order for you to pay that off, you have to stop making payments on your credit card debt and start making payments to the debt negotiator, the, the credit card debt negotiator, and that starts to destroy their credit or your credit. My industry, so both my company and everyone else in the industry does everything they can to protect people's credit. We don't want people's credit going down, down the drain in, during the negotiation process. We just want to allow people to be able to pay some amount to get out of debt so that they can move forward with their lives. It's kind of ridiculous that you had surgery, you can barely walk, and now you have a $10,000 bill that you're dealing with on top of trying to get your life back, trying to recover, trying to probably get back to work, working or spending time with your family. Right. Any particular situations and other forms of insurance like uh, workers' comp that factors into this or uh, anything? Oh, how about those? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get the, the phrase correct. Some of these religious-based... Yeah, MediShare-type plans or limited benefit plans. Yeah, so we see those all the time. I'd be very wary of using insurance there because they can essentially deny coverage for whatever reason they want. Um, and because they're not ACA compliant, you don't have the same type of state and federal regulatory bodies that you can appeal to if they're not covering appropriately. And so we see people all the time who have these types of plans who are denied coverage and they're getting these enormous bills that we have to work through. Yeah. So I'm not going to get, again, I'm not going to get this right and everybody can listen to it and Google it if you want, but it's basically when ACA was passed, right? The individual health insurance bill, they said, Hey, insurance companies, real insurance companies, here are kind of the parameters within which you must operate. And then there was a kind of a carve out that said, if you're a religious organization or a religious fraternal organization, you can offer essentially 
an insurance-like product based on donations. And it's really appealing because those ACA plans are not cheap. And there's always something out there on the internet or you hear from a neighbor or even your church that says, hey, have you checked out this kind of faith-based things? But it's not, again, as I understand it, it's not true insurance, right? They don't have the federal state regulations and oversight to A, have enough money or reserves in the bank to pay the, you know, the potential outstanding bills. You said you see a lot of confusion around those faith-based insurance, pseudo-insurance products. That and what I'll call our limited benefit or fixed price indemnity plans, which aren't faith-based, but they're also pseudo-insurance plans where they they basically do the opposite of insurance. They'll pay you a certain amount and they cap that, right? And so we see all the time people have fixed price or fixed benefit plans where it's capped at $2,500 a day in payments to the hospital. So if somebody goes to the hospital, has surgery, is in recovery for five or six days, I can tell you right now that no hospital only charges you $2,500 a day for a hospital stay. It's many multiples of that. And so they end up with these enormous medical bills as well. Yeah. Obviously, I have my own opinions given my insurance background, but uh, I think real insurance is important. Is always yep. is important, uh, even if it's more expensive. Because yeah. I, uh, I would, I would 100% you... agree with you, given what we see all the time with people that we work with in health. We've gone through a lot of different, very specific scenarios that will touch just about everybody listening to this. I mean, I've already asked at what level you said a thousand bucks. When do I know I need help? Is it the stack of paperwork on my desk that I'm supposed to review and I don't know if it's processed correctly? Is it when I get a big old bill and I can't pay it? Maybe I can pay it, but I want somebody to check it. You know, this is not something I think what you do is not in, I guess, the population's brain. It's kind of a, I got to self-serve this and figure it out. I know that when I go get something done, I'm going to get a mountain of paperwork and bills and then revised bills. And nobody wants to sit there and call the doctor or the hospital and get passed around and or the insurance company. It's a big pain. Is part of what you do alleviating that pain and basically hiring an expert to do it? Massive part of what we do is leaving that pain. So that time, we save people on average 40 hours of time actually trying to work through all of this stuff and deal with all this stuff, an enormous amount of stress and sort of that comfort in knowing that they have people who are whose job it is to figure all this stuff out, uh, doing this and getting them the best deal possible. That being said, the other question you asked in sort of when do I know when I should go call an expert to do this? I think that is a little bit individual. There are some people who are sort of want to take care of things more on themselves or sort of more willing to dive in and work through this than others. I think when you start questioning, should I be talking to somebody else? Should I be finding somebody to help me out? I think that's the best time to actually act on that question and go out and try to find somebody, come to resolve or find another medical billing entity to uh, to help take care of this for you. I'm glad you're doing this. I know it was out there, but it's because I'm in this space. But I got to imagine it's not something. I mean, the amount of relief you must when someone finds you, the amount of relief you must get over the phone has to be has to be very rewarding. And just from a personal and professional standpoint, it is. I will say the team of people that we have who talk to patients initially over the phone, that's sort of what feeds them is when they can actually help people move forward. You've got people who are basically feel crushed and sitting in a corner, right? Because if they've got these enormous medical bills, it's threatening to turn their entire life upside down. On top of the fact that they're probably recovering from some sort of major medical event, because that's what drove those medical bills in the first place. And so we're able to find a path out for them so that they can move on with their lives, get this all solved, put this behind them, and move forward. 
So if I'm doing this myself or I've got a family member or, you know what, if I'm a caregiver, right, if I'm somebody who's already spending gobs of my own personal time helping a loved one, I can take my pile of paperwork and go, here you go. You can't. And you'll give me the thumbs up. We'll we'll take a look. We'll give you the thumbs up. We'll tell you uh, we can find you savings and we'll go out and actually get those savings for you. Yes. It sounds so wonderful. It is. It's very easy. It's very easy. It's just, and we've designed it to be as big a load off your back as, as possible. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Before we wrap up, give me another story. I want to hear uh, of the, the success story. Someone called you, they were drowning in paperwork or they, you know, didn't have a, do you, do you have like just a super cool story of a, of a, of a wonderful outcome? Here's one that's that's really memorable. We had a we had a veteran who had a million dollars worth of medical bills. There was an issue with the medical provider charging the veteran, the VA covering some of it, but not all of it. And what ended up was this veteran who was on a pension had a million dollars worth of medical bills. And so we were oh able to work through that process. I mean, it took us a lot of time to organize everything because this person was just absolutely crushed. They actually had their health was declining and they were convinced it was because these medical bills were happening was causing their health to decline. We got the the million dollars to drop down to, I think it was under $14,000 at the end of the day for them. Wow. And then got them on a payment plan so that they're able to pay it off and then move forward with their life. A million to 14,000. Yeah. A, right. Not a political statement, but just a man that just ain't right. No. I mean, that's, how that even happens that someone's got a million bucks and has to call you for help is just crazy. That's my, that's my editorial aside, but it's also a really great story of when you think you're lost, you think you're confused, you've got paperwork piling up, bills coming in, calls coming in, there's help. And I'm really happy that you took time to explain to people and me when and how, and how this all works. So, um, geez, I can outsource my pain. You can. It sounds great. You can. And and save money in the process. I love it. Yeah. Braden, what question or questions did I not ask about this uh, during our conversation that I should have? So I don't know if there's any questions that you should have asked, but I do want to point out just how big of a problem this is and that if you are dealing with this problem, you're not alone, right? Something like four in 10 Americans, that's over 100 million people deal with medical debt. And there are communities in the U.S. where it's over 25% of the population has medical debt that they're dealing with. And that's an enormous, not just financial, but health toll, right? Like financial toll, dealing with that or having to put that on your credit card or deciding between rent and paying your medical debt. Um, but health-wise, right, many is 40% of adults say that they've delayed or gone without needed medical treatment due to costs and the fear of costs. As many as 25% of adults have get medications they've been prescribed due to costs, right? So like, if you are dealing with this, you're not alone in the sense that it's happening way more than it should. And in the sense that there's somebody or there are companies that can help you out and get you out of this process. So you, you touched on it once before, but I'm going to make you actually be a little bit more explicit. I can go on your website and I don't have to talk to anybody yet, right? But I can go on your website and do what? So two things. One, you can go on our website, Take a look at all of our resources to understand what's going on and actually solve this yourself if that's the way uh, if that's the kind of person you are and you want to tackle this and you want to deal with it and you feel like you can get a great outcome. The other thing is you can sign up for Resolve 
have a quick analysis done of your medical bills to understand what we can do for you. You can talk to a live person on the website or you can just go through entirely in product, not have to talk to anybody and get us started if that's the way you want to do. Oh, so I don't even have to talk to anybody if I don't, if want, don't to. want to. I can just don't. type my little problem, upload some documents and uh, wait for you to get in touch with me. And, and off we go. Or if you really want to talk, you can type your problems in, give us a little bit of background. We'll set up a free consult. We'll get 20 minutes with an expert to go over everything. This is awesome. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad I know this is out there. I, I, you know, you kind of heard of it, but to actually talk to somebody who's doing it, uh, this is awesome. Braden, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Matt. This was great. The Matt Fair Show, related content, publications, and MF Media LLC is in no way associated, endorsed, or authorized by any governmental agency, including the Social Security Administration, the Department of Health and Human Services, or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The Matt Fair Show is in no way associated with, authorized, approved, endorsed, nor in any way affiliated with any company, trademark names, or other marks mentioned or referenced in or on The Matt Fair Show. Any such mention is for purpose of reference only. Any advice, generalized statistics, or opinions expressed are strictly those of the host and guests of The Matt Ferret Show. Although every effort has been made to ensure the contents of The Matt Ferret Show and related content are correct and complete, laws and regulations change quickly and often. The ideas and opinions expressed on The Matt Ferret Show aren't meant to replace the sage advice of healthcare, insurance, financial planning, accounting, or legal professionals. You are responsible for your financial decisions. It is your sole responsibility to independently evaluate the accuracy, correctness, or completeness of the content, services, and products of, and associated with, The Mad Ferret Show, MF Media LLC, and any related content or publications. The thoughts and opinions expressed on The Mad Ferret Show are those of the host and The Mad Ferret Show guests only, and are not the thoughts and opinions of any current or former employer of the host or guests of The Matt Ferret Show, nor is The Matt Ferret Show made by, on behalf of, or endorsed or approved by any current or former employer of the host or guests of The Matt Ferret